All right, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tonight. Appreciate the testimony times. Well, I appreciate most of the testimony time. My wife came up afterwards to me and she said, you need to spend more time with Greg. I don't know what to add to it. I just... (laughs) Anyway, we'll begin at verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, that's the text. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Therefore, let's pray. Father, we come to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I beg you again tonight for the filling of the Holy Ghost of God because, Lord, we're dealing with spiritual things. And for that, we need the Spirit of God to take the Word deep into our hearts. Lord, may we not be able to get away from the truths that we're covering tonight. And may we make sure that we make what time we have left with the Lord here on earth, that we make account for God. And, Lord, we'll thank you for what you do in our hearts and lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a lot of people are always trying to figure out what life is all about. And of course, when the news media wants to come up with some kind of special saying, they'll go to all kinds of different people from different realms of life to ask them what they think life is about. What's a good way for us to spend our time? And I think most people would have to admit that we don't spend all of our time to its fullest in light of eternity. Now, the Lord, I believe, understands that part of it because there are a number of things that we have to take care of in life. I think we do find, though, that we have not only taken most of our quote-unquote free time and decided to use more and more for ourselves that we find less and less being used in actually serving the Lord. Many in life are trying to get the biggest thrill. Some are trying to make the most money that they can make, only to die and leave it to people who will blow it on things that never matter. Uh, Some try to be famous in whatever particular field they're in. They want to be well known. But no matter how you cut it, you only have so many days on earth. The psalmist even prayed, Lord, teach us to number our days. But it's amazing. People spend a lot of time going to psychiatrists. They spend a lot of time going to psychologists to try to find the answers when the truth is they don't even know the question. 
And they go to people. It amazes me, people that will go to a marriage counselor, a guy who's been married three times, so they can find out how they can better do their marriage, like this person knows. I doubt they've got it figured out yet. You want to know about marriage? You go to the Word of God and find out what it's supposed to be about. That's the best way. Now, I would suggest that we go to one of the wisest men who ever lived on the earth apart from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. No, and I'm not talking about Solomon. Although Solomon had a lot of wisdom, God gave him wisdom about a number of things. He even wrote a book on wisdom. And that, of course, was the book of Proverbs. But he wasn't so wise after all because he disobeyed God. He married numerous wives where between his wives and his concubines, he had over a thousand. And the Bible says that they turned his heart from God. How dumb can you get? Whereas he had been given the scripture, unfortunately, he wasn't wise enough to follow it. Now, you remember much of the book of Proverbs, for instance, that are written by Solomon, were written to his son. We all know that his son was Rehoboam. Rehoboam did not do that which was right in the sight of the Lord. I wonder why. Maybe it's because he had a dad who wrote to him basically saying, uh, don't do as I do, do as I say. And all that says to people is hypocrite. We need to be a people who do what we say. We do what we say. In other words, our talk and our walk should match. And I'm not going to go through the cute little sayings because I'll never get it right tonight. So we find Solomon played the fool. But I'm basically talking about the man known in the early part of the book of Acts as Saul of Tarsus. And then later as the apostle Paul himself. He was an educated man. He was trained to be a rabbi and a leader in Israel. And he started out by leading all the persecution against the Christians by the, by the Jewish Sanhedrin. He did what he could. Matter of fact, the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. He calls himself later after he got saved a blasphemer. But he received ignorance or received forgiveness because he did it in ignorance and in unbelief. He could say at the end of his life, after he's finished his life now, for I'm now ready to be offered. For the time of my departure is at hand. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. No blotches, no smears, no mess-ups in his life. Now, in 1 Corinthians, he is writing a book. There's a lot of doctrine in the book. But it is basically a book of rebuke to a church that he started. It wasn't an old church, hadn't been around a long time, only about three years. Didn't even have a complete Bible yet. But he had a number of things to cover with them. They were acting wrong because they were believing wrong about some things. He gets to chapter 15. It is a chapter dealing with the victory of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to me, it's an absolutely amazing statement that he makes when he says, how say some of you, he's writing to the church, he's writing to people who claim to be saved, and he says, how say some of you that there is no resurrection? Did he not teach them right when he got them saved? Sure he did. But you see, they were holding their reason above the scripture, and that's what created the problem. So after writing this book, he gets near the end of it here. He takes up an offering in chapter 16. 
But he gets near the end of it. And he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He spends 57 verses on this spiritual truth concerning the resurrection. And then he says, this is how it ought to affect your life. Did you think tonight when you came to church that what you heard might affect your life? I mean the rest of your life, not just tomorrow, but affect the rest of your life. The apostle Paul, who by this time has been saved for probably anywhere from 25 to 28 years. He has served the Lord faithfully. He's been stoned. He's been in shipwrecks. He's been jailed for simply serving the Lord. And here he is after all these years of serving the Lord and writing to this church that he started. He says, therefore, to you new Christians there at Corinth, here's how this truth ought to affect your life. The truths of the word of God should affect your life. Now, let's just review a little bit. He states the basis of his faith when he says back in chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye believed in vain." For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. you got to begin at the beginning. You have to begin with salvation. People think they need to begin with a lot of other things first. No, you need to begin with salvation first. And that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't have the gospel right, then you're just lost. That's all there is to it. He says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, he declares, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Do you realize that there are people who claim to be Christians, but when they hear about a church like Madison Baptist Church, that continually preaches the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They believe it's a waste of time. They believe it's unnecessary. You shouldn't have to be covering that over and over. Well, people have to begin at the beginning. And the beginning is getting saved. They have to get saved for anything else is going to work for them. On the road to Damascus is when the Lord Jesus Christ met with Saul of Tarsus. And Jesus Christ became his living hope. Here's the thing that absolutely filled up his soul. He's alive. He is alive. I have seen him. He is alive. And the whole rest of his life and ministry dealt with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ that he is alive. And it truly transformed his entire life. So that he could write in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, uh, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Did you get that? For to me, 
to live. What are my client plans? If I live, Christ. All right. And to die, man, that's gain. Because then who am I with? Christ. Not only that, he clearly stated the truth of the resurrection in verses 13 through 19. And why the resurrection of Christ is so important. If you look at it here in chapter 15, beginning in verse 13, he says, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. Now get this. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain or empty, and your faith is also vain or empty. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be, that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Now notice what he says next. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You look down through the centuries and the believers that have been persecuted and put to death and tortured for their belief that Christ is alive, that he is the only way to get saved. If he's not risen, then we are of all men most miserable. Now, the reality that Christ was returning is also part of this because we know he's not only alive, but he's coming back. You get to verse 51 and you'll notice he says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's not just a verse to put on the nursery door. We shall all be changed in the moment in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump of the trump, trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. Now, we have a similar description for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Jesus is coming back. You remember the angels that was talking to the disciples as they were looking up to heaven when Jesus ascended up to heaven. They said, this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go up into heaven. Thank God he is coming back. So he's not only covered the gospel and the importance of the resurrection, but the fact that that same Jesus is the one who is coming back and what a great day that will be. That's why Titus 2.13 declares, Paul wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When John wrote, he says, every man that hath his hope in him, I'd say every man that hath this open him keepeth himself pure. What a truth. Now, with that in mind, then we realize, we understand this, if the resurrection is real and Christ is raised, and because of that we have eternal life, if he's not raised, then none of us have eternal life, and our faith is in vain. We are of all men most miserable, but death is not the end. Jesus saw to that. Turn off the TV. Don't watch all these programs about ghosts and spirits staying behind when they die and trying to contact people so they can be set free. That's a bunch of nonsense, silliness, and wickedness. It's not biblical. I'm not saying there aren't demons in places, but everybody that dies either goes to heaven or hell. They don't stick around. 
and they had no choice in the matter. When the rich man died in Luke chapter 16, he was buried and in hell, he lift up his eyes being in torments. He didn't stay around. And when the beggar died, he didn't stay around either. He was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom right away. That's what happens at death. Death doesn't end at all. I mean, there's more going on. So in light of that truth, that the finished work of Christ is the basis for our salvation, that he lives and that he is returning and that God is something either better for us, therefore, therefore, this is what it ought to mean for us. Therefore, now once you get this, this comes from the word of God given by the Holy Spirit of God. I've given Paul credit so far, but you understand, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This is not Paul's word. This is God's word because all this about the resurrection is true. Therefore, here's what it ought to do to you if you're saved. And you can check yourself tonight by the word of God to see how well you have gotten this truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, number one, it should affect our behavior. He says, be ye steadfast, unmovable. After he's just given a stirring proclamation of great truths, he speaks to the individual Christians at the church at Corinth. He is not discussing doctrines here so much, although he's just covered the doctrine of the resurrection. He's not talking about where denominations may differ. He said, listen, because all this is true, therefore... You're to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He's not discussing baptism here. He discussed the Lord's Supper several chapters earlier. He's not dealing with eternal security here. He's dealing with living. Because Christ is alive, therefore. Now, we live in an anti-Christian age where many of our freedoms have been taken from us. It seems harder to get out the gospel. People seem to be harder to the gospel. But the task is still to go. It's still from the Lord. We're to be faithfully going. Matter of fact, let me say, Madison Baptist Church, we are more responsible to be busy getting out the gospel today than what we were 30 years ago. Why? There's more people on the planet. That's why. Because there are more people for whom Christ died and he's given the command of the church to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, we have that responsibility to do that job. Be steadfast, unmovable in life. Be steadfast and unmovable in faith. Be steadfast and unmovable in testimony. Be steadfast and unmovable in convictions. The scripture says in Ephesians 6, 14, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Ephesians 6, 14. Don't be swayed and overpowered by the world. I mean, the truth is, folks, there are a lot of people who used to claim everything that we stand for today, and they are nowhere close to where they used to be. They weren't steadfast and they weren't unmovable. There are people that used to have standards. As a matter of fact, their great concern was that they wanted to live in a way that pleased the Lord 
that showed that they had a testimony that they belonged to God and today they've been convinced that none of that stuff matters. They don't stand there anymore. It's not that the word of God changed its meaning. It didn't. The problem was they weren't steadfast and unmovable. I want you to get that. One day, Madison Baptist Church will no longer stand where it stands because the people, instead of being steadfast and unmovable, will move. They'll want something else. We have young people going off to Bible colleges. We're in the dorms, they're told by the other students that come from churches who have children that have decided that they get to decide what the Bible really says. And then the problem is they're not steadfast and they're not unmovable. Find out what the book says and stand on it. God hasn't changed his word. He says, for I am the Lord, I change not. He says in the scripture, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, 160, thy word is true from the beginning and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. God's definition of sin has not changed. He says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, which by the way, uh, the book of 1 John is one of the last books of the New Testament to be written. It was written sometime between uh, 90 and 100 A.D., The church had been going on for 60 years at least when the book of 1 John was written. And he gives us a very clear definition of sin. He says, whoso transgresseth the law... Let's let's turn to it because I'm going to mess it up tonight, I think. My brain's kind of scattered over the landscape. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. Now, notice the next three words. For sin is. This is a definition verse. Sin is what? For sin is the transgression of the law. You say, but now preacher, wait a second. We're under grace. We're not under the law. That doesn't change God's definition of sin. God's definition of sin is, sin is the transgression of, of the law. And God didn't save us for us to sin. He, he even asked the question in Romans chapter 6 Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer is God forbid. Therefore, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. But in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, verse 7, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Now, it should be that way in our daily lives. For instance, as I already read for you, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20, where he says in Philippians 1, let me just turn over to it, and verse 20, He declares, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I should be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ should be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. In our daily life, we should be living for the Lord. Over in chapter 3 and verse 14 of the book of Philippians, he says, I press toward the mark 
for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Because what we believe about Jesus Christ is true. We believe he came and died for our sins, was buried, and he arose from the dead. Therefore, be steadfast, unmoved. Say, preacher, how many times are you going to repeat that? Till we get it. This truth ought to affect us. What if this week is my last week on the planet? If it is, then I'm to be steadfast, unmovable for the whole next week. But if he gives me a month, then I'm to be steadfast, unmovable for the next month. Listen, churches are changing all over the landscape. Used to be a time, Brother Weeks, when if you mentioned that a church was an independent, fundamental Baptist church, just about everybody knew what that church stood for. They knew what they believed. What happened? They weren't steadfast, unmovable, always abounding. People want a little bit more freedom. We want to get away from the Word of God. Matter of fact, we just only want enough of the Word of God to live by so that we can say we're Christians and people can't dispute it because we still want so much of the world. And you can't have it. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. In prosperity or poverty, Whatever lot it is that God gives you, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You know what the big difference between David and Saul was? I mean, both of them were anointed kings. But you find when David comes back to Ziklag and finds out that the city's been overrun by the Amalekites and his wives and and the wives of his men and the stuff they had has all been taken off. Even some of his men were thinking about stoning him. The Bible says that he clung to the Lord. He held steadfast to the Lord. But then you got Saul, King Saul. And here he is facing a judgment. He's going to be facing the army of the, of the Philistines. And we find him, he doesn't go to the Lord. What he does is he goes to a witch. What a difference between these two men. What a move. I mean, it was God who had anointed Saul, but he wasn't steadfast. He began to think he didn't need instruction from God. What he needed to do was whatever he thought was right. That was the privilege of being a king. But to be a godly king, a good king, you have to take God's instruction and do it. In health or sickness, we're to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. My health doesn't change what the book says. The book is true whether I've got health or not. The book is true in all ways, steadfast, unmovable. You know, this is kind of the time of year when people are playing musical churches. And let's face it, uh, we've got people not only moving all over the place in this country, but folks who don't move from where they're living, they're changing churches all the time. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I... uh, Brother Schmidt has a couple of good stories about this. 
But it is amazing how many times in the ministry, and this is just the truth, you could be, as far as they're concerned, they'll brag on you and call you the greatest pastor they've ever had, greatest preacher that they've ever heard, until you tell them no. And when you say no, like for instance, they want to marry somebody that's been divorced and you won't perform the marriage. Or you won't marry people, you won't marry their daughter because the guy that she's been messing around with is lost, not saved, and you say, no, I'm not going to marry him. Suddenly, you're the worst pastor that ever walked on the earth. They hate you. Won't say a good word about you after that. Why? See, it's not about whether or not I do something to please you. It's the fact is that we're to be steadfast, unmovable. This book is always true. Our standards and convictions and beliefs shouldn't be changing every other week with the latest TikTok artist that comes out that says they're a Christian. You remember a couple of years ago, there was a young boy who said he died and went to heaven. And I told that story not too long ago uh, where that happened. Wrote a book. It became a bestseller. All the Christian bookstores were carrying that story about that little boy who died and went to heaven for a few hours. And now, I don't know, he's probably 18, 17 years old, something like that. Just a year and a half or so ago, he came out and said it wasn't true. He lied. It wasn't true. Well, I didn't get real excited about the beginning. Listen, I've got the word of truth that tells me all about heaven. You want to know about heaven? I'm not going to somebody who was drugged up and they may have stopped breathing. They may not have stopped breathing. I don't know what they see, but I know what this book says. And that's enough for me. I don't need anything else. Jesus Christ is alive. And because he is, I'm to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. By the way, it may be 2022, but alcohol's still wicked. I am shocked, by the way. I am absolutely shocked the different stores or restaurants, barbershop that you may go to, men or ladies, and you meet somebody, you try to just start a nice little conversation. And it seems like most often, that somewhere along the line, they say, oh, yeah, my little boy. Your little boy? You got a little boy. Yeah, me and my boyfriend, that's, that's our child. You I mean, you've got an illegitimate child and you don't care who you tell about it? There's no shame. There ought to be shame. Now, that child didn't sin. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But people ought to be shamed of their immorality, their dirty lifestyle, their wicked sin. They used to be. They're not ashamed anymore. They'll brag about You understand if they had an illegitimate child, you know what that means? They had an illegitimate child. That means these people were not married to one another. And they committed fornication. We're talking about harlotry and whoremongery. I'm not even sure if that last one's a word, but it is now at Madison Baptist Church. Amen. (laughs) I mean, this is amazing. We could go to the Bible word for the whole thing and I could really get some people mad at me. Because what we're ashamed of today, it's not the wickedness of mankind. It's the fact that there are still words that accurately describe what people are. And we're not supposed to use them. 
Well, I'm not going to be worried about being politically correct. I'm going to be biblically correct. And we'll just go ahead and tell the truth. Why? Because Christ is alive. Because he lives. He's coming back. I'm to be steadfast, unmovable. Some of you young adults, you need to get some Bible convictions. You know what you don't want to believe, but what do you believe? Get some Bible convictions. Give me a Bible verse that states what you believe. You see, I made a decision. I was going to Bible college, and um, some people at the Bible college had some convictions I didn't have. And I did what most everybody else does. I complained about it. I complained about it. And then God put me under conviction. There was a famous preacher I'd never heard before, but I heard that he was coming to Chattanooga. He was preaching. I remember the pastor's name where he was preaching at. I can't remember the church name. It might have been Trinity Baptist in Chattanooga. And so I went over to hear him. And he spent, he preached an hour and a half, and he was the second speaker. He preached an hour and a half. It was a four-point message. He only preached three of the four points. As a matter of fact, after an hour, what he was preaching on was criticism. He wasn't preaching on standards. He was preaching on criticism. And I mean, he was walking all over me. He was kicking me across that auditorium. He didn't know he was kicking me across that auditorium, but that's what he was doing. And after about an hour, I'm thinking, man, if you'll shut up, I'll come forward and get right. <laughs> Finally, after, after the next half hour... And he started the invitation. I went forward and I told the Lord, Lord, I know my critical spirit has been wrong. It's been sin. It's not right. And Lord, you knew every standard they had before I came here. And I believe you sent me down here because there were things I need to learn. And so I'm going to be honest for a change. And I'm going to get in the book and honestly study to find out whether or not these standards are of the Bible or not. I care not what people feel about them, but are these standards what the Bible is teaching? I have to say when I graduated, after walking across the platform, getting my diploma and the service is over, I went up to Dr. Robertson and I said, Doc, I want you to know, I said, Dr. Robertson, I didn't say Doc, Dr. Robertson, <laughs> nobody would have just called him Doc. Man, I'll tell you, all that water in the Red Sea would have come and washed me out of there. But... <laughs> I said, Dr. Robertson, when I came here, I did, I, that's from a Yankee church. I said, we, we didn't have a lot of the standards that you guys have here. But I can tell you, as I get this diploma tonight, that as far as I know, the standards that I've been taught here are what I'm following from now on. I believe they're of the Bible. Now, I know what it is to be a complainer. I've done it. I understand when other people do it. That doesn't shock me. Why would it shock me? I did it. But at least I got honest, got in the book, found out what it did say, and decided I was going to live by what it said. I wanted to find a bunch of other rebels to get around, and that would make me feel good in my rebellion. That's what people do. And then when they get two or three of their rebels together, then they try to find somebody. And, man, they'll use all kinds of peer pressure tactics to try to get them to change so that they'll feel better in their rebellion. It's what they do. Hey, be steadfast unmovable, always, why? Because he's alive, that's why. This is not a dead book. It is not a dead faith. It's real. Therefore, it ought to affect us in behavior. Not only that, it ought to affect us in service, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And right here is where a lot of people fail. 
We live, matter of fact, this is a day and age when people live or they work to play. It used to be people worked to live. They had to work in order to even put food on the table. Any old-time Southerner can tell you about the day. I'm talking about, you know, some 90-year-old Southerners. They can tell you about getting home from school, bailing cotton. They can tell you about getting up the morning, milking the cows, doing their chores, getting off to school. And when they got home, they had to take care of the cows again. They can tell you about the times mom and daddy kept them home for a week or two to harvest the cotton. And the work that they did, it was hard work. And they weren't rich people. They didn't have two or three cars. They had one that maybe it ran and maybe it didn't. Matter of fact, a lot of times they didn't even have air conditioning in their home. They knew what it was to work. And they used that food in, or used that money that they made in order to buy food to live. They never had much extra. They never ordered from Amazon. They didn't have the time. But we work today, people work to make money, to buy toys, to play. That's where we're at. And so we get old and we make it so we don't have to work anymore. I mean, after all, we want a four-day work week. Man, that was unheard of. You go back 40 years ago, that was unheard of. Why? People had to work to live. We don't work to live anymore. We work to play. And we don't make enough money to be able to play. We expect the government to give us more so we can play. They're to pay for the whole thing. Unfortunately, that whole philosophy of life gets into the church. Well, I'll teach Sunday school for a while. I'll help out for a little while. But we don't plan on living for the Lord right on through till we get to glory. No, we plan, hey, let's, I need to enjoy myself. Let's let the younger people do everything. The young people ought to be busy doing things. Unfortunately, they end up following the example of the older people who stop doing things. I'll never forget when I preached revival over at Gospel Light Baptist Church in Walkertown, North Carolina. Uh, This was in September of 2019. And I was shocked to find out. Now, on their bus routes, they ran at that time about 2,000 every Sunday on their bus routes. And they're out in the middle of the sticks, man. They're out in the middle of the country. All of their bus captains, not all of their bus workers, but all of their bus captains were between the ages of 50 to 80. They had a bus captain that was 80. Bus captain that was 80. Well, it's a shock today. A bus captain is 50. Still working for the Lord. They're Saturdays. Most of these people are retired from their jobs and all that, but their Saturday is spent knocking on doors to get kids to ride the bus to come to church. Working. Therefore, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 is not just for the young folks. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 1 Corinthians 9, 18, Paul writes and he says, For if I do this thing willingly, 
I have a reward, but if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. We should serve unselfishly. Now, what's amazing, if you've read the book of, first, or of the book of Romans, you know in chapter 16, the apostle Paul gives a long list of different believers that had been faithful in service, and he mentions for the Roman church to greet those people because of their service. A few years pass. Paul has now arrived in Rome. As a matter of fact, he had been arrested. And here he is in jail in Rome, and he writes back to the church at Philippi. Now, this is a few years after the book of Romans. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. And notice what he says. Epaphroditus, who had been a great blessing to him, had gotten very, very sick. And he was concerned. He knew the church at Philippi would be concerned. And he wanted to send somebody back to the church at Philippi to encourage them to be a comfort to them. And notice the comment that he gives in verse 18 of chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. He says... For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Now look at this. For all. What do you think all means? It means all. He's at Corinth, I'm sorry, he's at Rome, and he's talking about out of that church at Rome. He says, for all seek their own and not the things that are Jesus Christ. What an indictment against an entire church. He says, for all seek their own. Now, the reality is, In America, we make way too much money. There are too many things. There's too many cool things out there. We got it to blow. You know, gas could be $4 a gallon. It was up in Pennsylvania when I was there two weeks ago. $4 a gallon. And we'll complain about it, but we know it's not going to keep us from doing anything we want to do. We can still go out to any restaurant we want to and eat. And we know we're going to pay that gas bill and we're not going to be wanting. We're still going to have food tomorrow and we'll have food the next day. We've got plenty. And we know that. See, but because he lives, we should be steadfast, unmovable. The reality is because of all this free time we've got, we should have, we've got more time now to serve the Lord than what we've ever had. But we're not. We ought to serve out of a love for God. What a privilege. I believe it ought to be a joy. I think every Christian that can hit the notes ought to look forward for the opportunity to sing in the choir. Man, to meet together every Sunday night and go through about 45 minutes of practice to get ready to get up there, not to perform, but to glorify the Lord. You take a look at the choirs in the Old Testament. You realize David one time, he was getting ready to go into battle and, well, it wasn't David. It was one of the other kings. I think it might have been uh, Jehoshaphat. And they put the choir at the front of the battle. 
And the Bible says, when the choir began to sing praises to the Lord, that God set ambushments around and they got the victory. They didn't need the guys to fight. The choir took care of And they, were they that bad, really? (laughs) No, they weren't. That's not it. It ought to be a joy to work in the nursery. I mean, the privilege of being able to serve God ought to be a joy to work in junior church. Ought to be a joy to work in the bus ministry. Ought to be a joy to clean. I was walking around the church this week a couple of different times. And, uh, There were some soda pop cans in the gym just put in different places. There was people got water and, you know, they left the the cups up there half full, evidently expecting Miss Betty to pick them up and throw them away. I doubt any of these were old people that couldn't get across the gym floor and throw their own stuff away. They were just spoiled little brats who think everything ought to be there for them to do with as they will and create work for other people and they don't care. Well, I didn't want Miss Betty to have to pick it up, so I did it. I'm not asking for a hand or an applause or anything like that at all. Why? I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I mean, the truth is, if we all, when we came to church and, and every pastor's had this happen, Pastor... Did you see the papers that were left on the floor in that Sunday school room? Pastor says, no, I didn't. Thank you for picking it up. Well, I didn't pick it up. I just thought you ought to know about it. Why wouldn't you bend down and pick it up? Well, the church is so dirty. It wouldn't be if everybody picked up the stuff that was around. They picked up their own stuff. There wouldn't be much to pick up if they pick up their kids' own stuff. Wow, how about that? Don't get upset with me. I'm trying to help you. This truth that he lives ought to change how we look at life. We are not here to live for ourselves. We're here to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let's get serious. Let's get real. No wonder the world doesn't think much about our faith because we show it as being unimportant. Oh, I believe the Bible. All right, then obey it. I love God. Then show it. Be steadfast, unmovable. The reality of rewards. Because the resurrection is true, because we will be caught up to stand before him, because we are the victors, there are both rewards now and the blessing of seeing changed lives. You want to see changed lives? It's witness to more people. That's how you see changed lives. Well, I'm going to go someplace else because we're just not seeing God move like before. Well, why don't you let God move through you? Amen. I mean, really, there's an answer to all this stuff. You know, as bad as what the church at Corinth was, I don't fault Paul saying, go and start another one. Start one that's better. He doesn't say that. He expects them to get right. That was the answer. Get right. Therefore, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Ah, You might suffer some slam doors or some harsh words, but 
the joy of seeing lives changed for the glory of God. That's rewards now. But you understand there are also rewards later on. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why are we going to have to appear for the judgment seat of Christ? Because he lives. Because he rose from the dead. It's the judgment seat of Christ where the Christ judges us that he saved. How we spent our time. Did we spend it for ourselves or for him? He says, every man's work should be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive reward. If any man's work be burned, he shall suffer loss, though he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Rewards for eternity, crowns that fade not away, the blessing of having served the king of kings. I'm 73. That doesn't even seem right. How in the world? Man, I came here at the age of 40. And I think sometime near the latter part of my 40s, I evidently stepped on a banana peel and slid into 73. Man, that went by fast. I mean, to me, my 60s were a blur. And now everything's a blur. That's why I'm wearing these. (laughs) Everybody today is stuck on their own sufferings. It's amazing what we call suffering today. Doing without a few things. Oh, my. Can you imagine we got a super conference coming up where the preacher's going to expect us to be here. To hear two preachers a night for six nights. I mean, we're living in a day where independent Baptists are stopping their Wednesday night services. We live in a world today where fundamental Bible believers don't even come back to church on Sunday night. That's the world we live in today. We haven't grown. When I say grown, I'm not talking about numerically. I mean, we've not grown spiritually. And the reason we've not, we've gotten so selfish about our time. We don't want to give any more to God than what we have to. What a crying shame that is. In light of eternal truths, we need to understand how it ought to affect us. Realize what is really important. I read a story about a man whose name I cannot pronounce. I don't know how to pronounce it, and I couldn't find anywhere to pronounce it right. I don't know if his name was Ali Borneman Bull. His first name is O-L-E. He is Swedish. Would Ali be it? Anybody know? We're thinking. None of you know either. I shouldn't even mention I didn't know how to pronounce it. I should have just said it, and you'd have thought, well, evidently, Brother Allison knows how to say it. But Ali Borneman Bull, he lived in the 1800s. He was a Norway superstar with the violin. I mean, he was the violinist of the 1800s, world-renowned violinist. Uh, He wasn't Swedish, by the way. He was from Norway. His friend was Swedish, and that was a man by the name of John Erickson. Now, they would meet in their adult life later on in America. And uh, Ali Bull invited his friend to come hear him play at a concert. And he said, I have no time for music. Erickson said, I have work to do. I don't have time to listen to music. So Bull offered to come to his shop 
and to play for him and the people at his work. But Erickson again refused. Well, then Bolt tried to think of a way that he could get Erickson to hear him playing the violin. And so he called up John Erickson and he said, listen, I'm, I'm having trouble with the sound out of my violin. Could you look at it? And Erickson said, sure. Took the thing apart, put it all back together. And so obviously, Bull had to play it to see if it still put out a good sound. And he did. He played a favorite of people over in Norway and Sweden, uh, a favorite uh, hymn that, that they loved. Matter of fact, the people at the shop all stopped their work and they were watching it. Erickson's head was bowed down low. And when Bull had finished, Erickson raised up his head and he had tears coming down his face. He said, please play on. Don't stop. I knew, never knew before what I was lacking in my life. I just have a feeling. Brother Popwell, there's a whole lot of us that when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, it'll be tears coming down our eyes because we didn't realize how much we wasted so much of our life. But Jesus is alive. Therefore, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray tonight that you deal with our hearts. May we seriously consider our ways. May we consider our lives. I know that physically as we get older, all of us can't do things that we used to do, but there are still some things we can do. God, may our goal still be to serve you, to please you, to use whatever part of our life that we can to glorify your name. Lord, deal with our hearts tonight. I pray that our young people, whether they be teens, whether they be young adults, middle-aged adults, I pray tonight, Lord, they're the next generation. If they don't take a stand for the things of God, who's going to do it? You're alive. And Lord, I believe at the judgment seat, I'll be able to give testimony that I tried my best to give them the truths of the word of God and they'll answer to you for what they did with them. Lord, may they be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. God, have your way in our hearts and lives tonight, I pray. In Jesus' name.